0: TED Audio Collective.
1: Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click, click, click,
2: click. Writer's block?
1: Release with Canva Magic Write. Dress less and save time at Canva.com. Designed for work. Canva.
0: We are in Old San Juan. This is my first time here. The streets are super colorful. We can see water on both sides of us. Yesterday we saw iguana tracks. I'd never seen iguana tracks. And those iguana tracks led to a real iguana today, which is pretty cool. We found the... Iguana! Hey, Iguana! But this all looked very different a few years ago when, on the morning of September 20th, 2017, Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico.
3: The baseball parks that you grew up playing weren't there. The Ceiba tree wasn't there. The flamboyant tree was not there. The energy wasn't there. And and we
0: really felt as though this bomb had exploded. That's Manolo Lopez, who is co-producing this episode with us. He's a chef and the host of a podcast about Latinx culture called Identity at Play. Manolo said that the storm reshaped people's relationship with the island in so many different ways. With sustained winds of 155 miles per hour, Maria uprooted trees, downed cell towers, cut off electricity to the entire island and wiped out its agricultural supply lines. But the costs went way beyond that. It also broke many people's trust in the systems they depended on. And so for a lot of folks, the recovery efforts became about more than just building back what was. They also became about figuring out what could be, and so to see this unfolding in real time, I'm hitting the road with Manolo. That's good,
3: man. It's great to meet you, Manolo. Bienvenido a Puerto Rico. Yeah, gracias. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy y'all are here and that I can show you Puerto Rico in a different way. Puerto Rico as locals
0: see it and Puerto Rico as
3: people who left and came back see it.
0: I'm Salim Rashimwala, and from TED, this is Far Flung. In each episode, we visit a different location to understand ideas that flow from that place. And today we're in Puerto Rico, the oldest colony in the world, to see how in response to the deadliest natural disaster to hit the U.S. in 100 years, folks are building new systems that they can depend on. And we're here taking notes because for the past two years during the pandemic, pretty much the entire world has been figuring out new systems to get by as the world is closed around us. And as things open up again, this question keeps coming up. What happens when you decide not to go back to the way things were? Manolo told me that after Hurricane Maria, there was so much pain on the island, but worse than the pain was the lack of hope he felt in the loss of the island's natural spaces. His connection with the land goes back generations.
3: I grew up on the west side of the island. So anywhere outside of the metropolitan area, people are like, "Oh, there's someone hiba. You are hibaros. I'm a hibaro." Wait, what's a hibaro? It's like someone from the countryside who is illiterate, who can only work with their hands, who was usually the person cutting sugarcane or plantains. But I love being self-sufficient, of growing your own things and not having to depend on supermarkets and convenience culture. I find pride in that.
0: For the past 500 years, Puerto Rico has been dominated by and dependent on colonial powers. First by Spain, after Columbus, then by the United States. Colonialism is something that we deal with every day, whether
3: it's physically being in a place that's colonized or mentally being colonized.
0: Today, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory, which means it's not a state and not an independent country either. And there's a lot of debate as to whether Puerto Rico should become independent.
3: You know, we are U.S. citizens, but basically we're second-class citizens. We don't vote for the president of the United States. We don't have any representation in Congress with a true voice.
0: With all these natural disasters, Puerto Rico is often talked about as just being geographically unlucky. But it's not that simple. We can't get into all the policies that restrict Puerto Ricans from having a say on what impacts their everyday lives. But for many of the folks we talk to, one policy stands out, the Jones Act. Basically, it says that all imports to Puerto Rico must be shipped in vessels built, owned and operated by American companies, meaning that the U.S. profits from controlling what enters Puerto Rico. And Puerto Ricans have to pay significantly more than surrounding islands just to receive goods. And although the Jones Act was temporarily suspended during the hurricane so that people could receive aid sooner and cheaper, it was a telling moment. Why does it take a crisis to even temporarily be on a level playing field? Look, Puerto Rico has never been able to make its own decisions,
3: to have its own identity on the global scale. So I think progress needs to come from a cultural revolution to make sure that Puerto Rico is able to have its own voice.
0: Manolo says that voice became louder after Maria. That's when former US President Trump blamed Puerto Ricans for stalled relief efforts, but also delayed sending about 20 billion in aid. An estimated 200,000 Puerto Ricans left the island either temporarily or permanently. So it triggered this whole campaign which is called Joe Mequito or Joe no quito. like I gave
3: up or I didn't give up. And that's hard because it starts putting our people into this debate of I stayed, I'm trying to help. And you know it's it's a heated conversation.
0: Oh, I see. It like it's people
3: yeah, it's people who stayed against people who left. Exactly. So instead of doing a campaign that brings people together, that campaign
0: started getting people to to push away from each other. Manolo says what was a natural disaster became a man-made one. Things were so bad that it was estimated that Puerto Rico, one of the most densely populated islands in the world, an island with a population of 3.3 million people, only had enough food to feed its population for a week. But how is it that a lush and fertile island is importing 85% of its food when its tropical climate allows it to grow food year-round? Well. A colony is not designed to be self-sufficient.
2: There's this sense of Armageddon, the world has ended.
0: That's Christine Nieves. She's a community organizer and climate change activist.
2: There's no government, there's nothing. And behind that fear of abandonment or chaos, there was a sense of, but that means that we can build a different way of living. Two
0: weeks after the hurricane, Christine says the very first aid that arrived in her neighborhood was a truck with little packets of nutri bars, Vienna sausages, Skittles, and some mini water bottles. It felt like too little too late. So instead of waiting for more aid, Christine and her partner, Luis Rodriguez, co-founded a makeshift relief center called the Proyecto de Apoyo Mutuo, or the Mutual Support Project. They started it in Mariana, a small mountain village on the southeastern tip of the island. That's where the hurricane first made direct contact and destroyed most of her and her family's home. What started as a small community kitchen became a community space complete with solar panels, free Wi-Fi, rainwater collection, and filtration for cooking. At its peak, they served 300 meals per day.
2: The food was the thing that brought people there, but people stayed because they had company and people stayed because they wanted to feel like they had a purpose and they mattered. And there was a sense that you could contribute things more than money. Oh, that's the fisherman.
4: the fisherman. He comes in the car with fish and the microphones just singing a song, a really sad song, usually. It's like a bolero.
0: That's Luis. He's a musician whose family has lived in Mariana for generations. After the hurricane hit, Luis got himself a loudspeaker set up to broadcast updates directly to his community.
4: At first, what we did was I take the speaker and I plug it into the car and I went with a microphone like the guy like actually the, the fishermen. So, uh, neighbors, everybody, uh, this Monday we're gonna be opening the kitchen, so come with food if you have. If you can work with us, come. And if you can't do anything, just come, and we'll figure it out. And then people start coming and coming and coming and coming. But keeping this going day
0: after day took its toll, and Christine and Luis started to realize that they hadn't fixed their own house from the damage caused by the hurricane. And at the time, They had a
4: baby on the way. We brought food and communications and energy and water and all those stuff for surviving. But you gotta break if you're breaking inside, you know? Being outside so much for so many people, it just brought me at a point that I lose myself. Then I realized I haven't been taking care of me, you know? I didn't play, I'm a musician. I didn't play for so long, for almost two years. Because I wake up at 6 to get food for people, and you go really fast because you react to the environment, and, you know, there's a lot of old people in the community, and you have to help them, right? And we were young, and we were doing that, but I would do it totally different, actually, what we did. <laughs>
0: it's so interesting when you're thinking about help, you hear the word selfless.
4: Just ask every activist that you know of, are they burnout? out? Of course, are they, they are burnout. out. You know, they just burn out because they're not paying attention within. And you have to do a balance. You know, what your skills are, you know, what your things that you love. And when you love something, you're gonna do it with love and then that's gonna spread into the community. That's how it works.
0: What about the times when there's not a disaster happening?
4: Well, there's always people in disaster. You know, there's there's always people in pain. Fair. You know, it doesn't have to be a hurricane just to feel bad. We need more positive change that makes you feel something inside of you. Where do you find that sense of a high energy level, like happiness, in that devastation? Where do you find that, that makes you keep going?
0: And one way they kept up people's spirits was by delegating tasks within the community so that everyone has a role and time to take care of themselves.
2: In order for an initiative like Proyecto Apoyo to happen, we needed people with different skills. And so it was a matter of having conversations with people and finding out, wait, you know how to paint, you're a painter, okay, can you help us make the signs? Or wait, you're picking up water, can you bring water over to our kitchen? And so for us, The key was that we had a very clear vision, right? People are going hungry, there's no hope, so we have to do something for ourselves. And it was this, like, well, what do we have? And it was starting from a place of abundance. We have so many people that know how to cook at a time when people were eating canned food. To be able to have something that tasted a little bit like home, like grandma cooked it because grandma cooked it, oh my goodness.
0: The work was more than just meeting material needs they started thinking about people's mindsets. They thought, if we have all these skills here on the island, why are we just now activating them in a disaster?
2: Have you seen murmurations of the birds that are all flying in these beautiful patterns, and they seem like they've been rehearsed? That's what happened after the hurricane. There was, like, this unrehearsed connection, this different level of relating to each other. People started behaving with what I like to think about as a higher version of themselves.
0: Manolo says that's where mutual aid comes into the recovery effort. Mutual aid, it's the arrangement of your
3: community coming together for a specific cause. What's interesting is that the solidarity came from our family, from our neighbors, from our community. I don't think mutual aid is something that
0: could be defined just for natural disasters. They developed three strategies to help do what they call decolonizing. The first step is to rewrite common narratives of Puerto Rico. The second, to increase leadership within the community. And the third, to reimagine the future of Mariana and Puerto Rico as a whole.
2: People coming together and beginning to believe a different story of themselves and what we can do together creates a reality for everybody that goes beyond what we've imagined, you know? It's not someone else saving us, it's us taking care of us. That's very much the future because if systems are simultaneously gonna collapse, then we have to look at the invisible infrastructure, the the way that community comes together as a real systemic solution that allows people to, to survive through chaos.
0: One of the people telling stories about Puerto Rico from Puerto Rico is a local investigative journalist named Bianca Graulau.
3: So we're driving to the west coast of the island. We're
0: going to stop in a town called Camoy. Kamui is a small town on the Atlantic coast of the island, and its claim to fame is that it's home to the world's third largest underground river and has hundreds of caves you can explore.
1: And you might catch some turtles. What? You can see them <laughs> swimming on top of the waves. Wow. Look, right oh, yeah, 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 You, you saw it? I saw a turtle. I saw the back a turtle. <laughs> you saw it? The right turtle. there. Yep, yep. They're real. They're real.
0: I believe in your turtles now. <laughs> when the hurricane hit, Bianca was a reporter working for a TV station in Florida but when she heard how bad things were, she came back. At first, Bianca thought she would just take a quick trip back to help out, but when she saw the way the media was covering the hurricane, things changed.
1: We were seeing all those images of the disaster. We weren't really seeing the heart of the communities. You know, when you're in the U.S. and you're seeing those horrible images and you're just like, oh, poor Puerto Ricans, like, that's really bad. But you're not seeing that other side of how communities are banding together to survive.
0: On the ground, Bianca saw a different story. She saw care, and she saw people figuring out a new way to do things.
1: So when you're in a situation where you don't have any food, supermarkets are closed, no one is coming, then your neighbor knocks on your door and says, hey, I have two packs of rice. Do you want one? And they say, thank you so much. I made some coffee. Do you want some? So that interconnectedness was about survival after Hurricane Maria. And then I think from there, it was sort of like, why don't we go back to living like this? And it gets a little tricky because I always get annoyed by this idea of, like, Puerto Ricans are so resilient, ignoring the situation that so many centuries of colonialism has put us in. On the other hand, you you can't help but be in awe at what Puerto Ricans are capable of in the midst of continued disasters. And I think the people who are doing the work to become self-sufficient. They want to see a better Puerto Rico and they want to see communities also make it out of this dependence. And I felt like that story needed to be told. And when I came here, that's what I did.
0: Bianca started publishing those stories on social media and developed a following that at the time of this recording includes over 600,000 TikTok followers. She breaks down what the government did and didn't do with all that money and holds the government to account. And one of those stories Bianca wanted to tell was about the politics surrounding food security on the island.
1: I think a lot about decolonizing our diet. What we eat on a daily basis, what is sustainable and what isn't.
0: Right, and before the island was ever colonized, people were growing and eating food without importing it. So pre-colonial food habits are full of hints on how to live without being dependent on those imports. And it's a really interesting question. What would people be eating today if the island had never been colonized? Ask Manolo. You know, I think about that
3: a lot when I'm cooking, because under Spanish rule, not only was the indigenous Taino population nearly wiped out, but so was their culture and their knowledge. So their agricultural traditions were replaced by large scale plantations for cash crops, like sugarcane, coffee, and tobacco. And then when the U.S. militarized the island and introduced manufacturing jobs in the cities, our people became increasingly removed from their land and food traditions. So so we developed more of a palate that's imported foreign food.
0: You can see that with products like Goya becoming a household staple across the island.
3: We
1: know that places like Puerto Rico are already being hard hit by the effects of climate change. We know that depending so heavily on imports, is harming us and will continue to harm us. So I think a lot about what is on our plate that if we weren't so dependent on imports, wouldn't be there.
0: And so today, transitioning back to growing and eating more traditional food is not so simple.
1: I often think about that transition and how much of it will happen slowly and purposefully and how much of it will just happen in an emergency state where we have to go down the road and see if we find any pana trees because imports are not coming in. So now we have to go forage.
0: Quick note, panas, also known as breadfruit, are more like a huge potato than a fruit. So they're super filling and hearty, good to have around during a hurricane. So on the flip side of searching for panas because you are in a situation that calls for that immediate need, What are some of your joyous thoughts around foods that fall into that category of sustainable or native?
1: I'm a horrible cook, unfortunately. (laughs) But the few times that I am able to get a pana from my grandparents' house or I come home with malanga, that was grown in Puerto Rico, I get so much joy of making the simplest of dishes with it. Even if I'm a bad cook, it reminds me of my childhood, but also I make that connection with this thing that I'm eating was grown right here on this land. And, and that's a beautiful thing.
3: But I had a similar upbringing, like where I was taught you have to surpass everyone, and more so than that, all the culture that was happening up north is better than your culture. So if you gave me a hot dog over cassava or yuca as a kid, I was going to grab that. But that was also influenced by watching your MTVs, your Nickelodeons, your VH1s, whatever it was, where the marketing was always towards that. So you start thinking that everything that happens in the U.S. is better
0: than here. Like many from his generation, Manolo moved to New York to pursue higher education as soon as he could, in his early 20s. The moment that I landed in New
3: York, I started feeling so proud to be Puerto Rican and I started learning how to be a real Puerto Rican.
0: New York has the second largest population of Puerto Ricans in any U.S. state, just behind Florida. Almost 10% of the New York City population is Puerto Rican. As I was going to my new apartment, I started
3: seeing these murals with Puerto Rican flags and all the freedom fighters from Puerto Rico and all the Puerto Rican cafes and music. And I started asking around and started talking to people in the community centers. And I started learning about Puerto Rican history. And it was my first cultural awakening. And with all that newfound information and admiration for my people, I started cooking again and I started doing all these pop-ups around New York and we would cook mofongo.
0: Mofongo is kind of the unofficial national dish of Puerto Rico. Manolo's version is inspired by his mom's recipe and traces all the way back to Puerto Rico's West African heritage. You
3: have deep-fried plantains, you have smashed fresh garlic, your adobo spices, and you cannot forget about the pork rinds. That's forming to like this little paste, right? And then again, sometimes you have it with fried pork. Other times you have it with stews. And sometimes you just have it with a broth. But every time, it's just perfect.
0: Manolo started his own mafongo food truck in Brooklyn, and it blew up. And now I'm the one cooking it around the world, and people are liking it. What is
3: this? This is amazing, and this is just something very cheap that we know how to make very delicious. But the reason why it's cheap is because it was handed down by the jibaros,
0: and they were ingenious enough to learn how to make it in a beautiful way. Manolo channeled that pride when cooking for the community in the aftermath of the hurricane. As soon as he heard about how hard Puerto Rico was hit, he jumped on the first flight he could catch down to San Juan to help out with the relief effort. But there were a lot of logistical challenges. As a chef in New York City, a mistake could mean a bad review. But in cooking meals after the storm, a mistake in the kitchen meant that people would not eat. I looked at food so differently. I only do
3: family-style meals now because I want people to share food. I want people to talk. I want memories to be evoked. I want people to ask, hey, can you can you pass me the tostones or, or the gandinga? And you reach over someone and Food has changed in that perspective for me, where we have to go back in time to the way that our ancestors distributed food and came together around a table.
0: And when you start looking at food differently, you start thinking about where it comes from. And so to dig into those roots, Manolo met with folks across the island who are thinking about how to apply Puerto Rican traditions in this new way and on a larger scale. That's after the break.
4: Eat like half of it. No one has died so far. It's going to kick you. It's going to start waking up senses in your mouth. It's going to be about two minutes of a roller coaster.
0: That's Efred Robles. He and his wife, Edgely Martinez, run the farm where Manolo gets his best produce from. The farm really stepped up following the hurricane to provide fresh, locally grown food to the island. And visiting here... It feels like I've been dropped into some kind of botanical Willy Wonka wonder world. If Willy Wonka was a four-wheeler riding, kava-pouring, goat-raising farmer, and he kind of gave us all a golden ticket. Woo, what is happening in my mouth? My tongue is fizzing. It feels like Pop Rocks and lemonade, and now it's salty, and now it feels like I'm eating meat. Now I'm tasting cheese. I have no idea what's going on in my mouth. My lips are numb and tingly, and my mouth is full of turkey bacon is the sensation I have. (laughs) That's one of the wildest things I've ever consumed in my life. And you just heard a friend give me this strange little yellow flower from his greenhouse. The flower is called a lemon drop.
4: Just one girl start crying. Like, what did you give me?
1: <laughs> are you
4: kill me?
0: So why is a friend passing around homemade kombucha and cava and this mind blowing flower for people to sample? It's partially because he and his wife are self proclaimed foodies, but it goes beyond
4: that. I believe that most people, as soon as they start eating, it will change their mind. These are
0: not examples of traditional Puerto Rican foods, but they are part of a friend's playful master plan to re-energize farming, and that he hopes will get more local food on the tables. Their farm has become a sort of agricultural mad scientist lab and education center.
3: When you hear the term farm to table, Efren is a direct collaborator between all the chefs on the island.
0: Manolo says Efren's approach is twofold growing traditional vegetables indigenous to the island, like yuca a root vegetable that grows underground so it can tolerate a hurricane. And then he also grows specialty foods like that bizarre lemon drop flower, which isn't native, but is so unique that he can sell it without having to compete with a ton of other people making the same thing. And that gives his business a major advantage when competing with U.S. imports.
4: we got a bunch of crazy chefs that tell us what the trends are and how we can grow. And in this facility, we try to do the the R&D to make sure that it's sustainable. We've been
3: fortunate enough to develop relationships with farmers like him to bring seasonal
0: ingredients we use in specific dishes. Wandering through Efren and Angelie's farm, things don't always grow in specific rows, but are grouped by mutually beneficial relationships. For example, rich reddish purple amaranth grains growing on the edge of fields. You can eat that, but it also keeps insects away. You can kind of see this botanical mashup is a bit of a metaphor for skill-sharing and mutual aid in itself. The plants are a diverse set of neighbors helping each other out. And if you come to the island, one place you might see and taste some of a friend's produce is at a bar in Old San Juan.
5: This is a very special corner of Puerto Rico and of Old San Juan. This corner has served drinks for generations. It is usually to capacity and you have to dance your way through the people.
0: (laughs) I'm excited to dance my way through the space. That's great. Yes, yes, yes. That's Carlos Irizarry. He's a longtime friend of Manolo's and the manager of La Factoría. The bar opened in 2013 and has been named one of the 50 best bars in the world. It was like the,
5: you know, left-wing bohemian scene artist bar of Old San Juan. And this place was a bar established in 1958 called Hijos de Borinquen.
3: Yeah, that means Sons of Borinquen. And for some context, Borinquen is what Puerto Rico was called by the Tainos before we were colonized. And at La Factoría, you can still see their original name on the wall.
5: Whoever comes to La Factoría, I really do feel that it is a great scenario to showcase our Puerto Rican culture through the flavor of the cocktails. You know, like for example, the champeta with the fermentation of the pineapple. When we do a fermentation like that in this type of weather and this type of sugar content, it creates a very
3: rich, funky juice. A rich, funky juice is an amazing description. I want
0: that. Before La Factoría started working with local farms like Frutos del Guacabo, Monolo would not have found that rich, funky juice on the menu. Carlos said that at the time, they could not see what they already had. At
5: the beginning, everybody wanted to be a New York bar. We wanted to make Manhattans, and we never realized that we have piña coladas, you know? At the beginning of Factoría, I can tell you that it took us time to identify our voice in all of these situation and for example you have trends like tiki or yeah. that are emulations of the caribbean but we are the
0: caribbean even just talking about it just now, your body language shifted. You got some pride, you felt good. What was the moment when you switched to being like, we are the Caribbean, this is us, like we're the originators, we can make new things, we can be authentic. What changed that for you? Uh, it was the opportunity to travel. So It's similar to Monolo, like leaving is the thing that made you feel good about it.
5: Yes, there is a problem in Puerto Rico of insularism. Like we are limited to the knowledge that we carry, but then you get to travel and you see how the world works. And that totally gives me a, a different view of
0: who we are and what we do. His biggest test of that mentality came with the hurricane. When the heart of old San Juan, known for generations for its lively energy, that all shut down.
5: There was no power. There was no food. There was no shortage of complications. And literally, the conversations were like, how many times you check the price of the flights to get the fuck out of here? Man?
0: But instead of leaving, Carlos stayed. He knew other bars, restaurants, and shops had to be going through the same thing he was. So he did something super practical. He started meeting with bartenders and business owners to figure out how their businesses would survive. They'd meet up at La Factoría. At first they were just sharing sorrows, but those meetings eventually became a way for locals to practice collective bargaining so they could keep working, group their power, and stay in Puerto Rico. Like,
5: through a collaboration, you can overcome everything. For example, in terms of a bar, are you paying too much for limes? Well, get together and buy limes together and help out each other. The key is communication and knowing your place inside of a community that guarantees your success and the community itself. And I feel like we are still here thanks to that. You know
0: what I mean? And the spirit of collaboration is something Manolo was really proud to show us among all the people he connected us to. From opening community kitchens and building mutual aid networks, to documenting news by and for the diaspora, to growing traditional food. For Christine and Luis, even though this is the future they've been fighting for, they know there's a lot of work to be done.
4: What is the conversation that we have to have? It's not how are we gonna fight the imperialism and organize against something. For me, it's a conversation, what are the possibilities that we want? And let's tap into that. If people don't feel that are colonized, then you will see maybe a free country at some point.
2: My vision for our island is that we can get to the place where we can begin to name, identify, and pay attention to those barriers inside of us that keep us from our greatness and step into practices, spaces, communities that remind us to let go of that old way of being
4: Mm.
2: and to practice collaborating, cooperating, caring for each other.
4: The thing that's gonna save Puerto Rico are their own people. It's not the U.S., so sometimes maybe, yeah, maybe having a hurricane is a good thing. It's just a quantum leap for your soul. The hurricane
2: was like, boom, this is who you are. Are you gonna live into that greatness of who you are? And we Mm. did.
4: We did.
0: Far Flung is produced by...
2: Jesse Baker.
0: And... Eric Newsom. Of Magnificent Noise for Ted. Our producers for this episode were local producer Manolo Lopez and... Elise blenner Our production staff includes...
1: Huete Guitana, Sabrina Farhi,
0: Michelle Quint... Sam Ben Chang, Jimmy Gutierrez, Sammy Case, with the guidance of Roxanne Highlash and Colin Helms. Our fact checkers are Nicole Bodie and Mary Jesethoson. Ad stories are produced by Transmitter Media. This episode was mixed and sound designed by Kristen Muller and
4: Elise Blenerhassett.
0: Additional thank you to Bianca Gralau, Christine Nieves Rodriguez, Luis Rodriguez, Efren Robles, and Angie Martinez of Frutos del Guacabo, Carlos Irizarry of La Factoria, Camille Padija Daumau, Chef Mario Juan, and Utabil Libaez for your time and expertise. Our executive producer is Eric Newsom. I'm Salim Reshamwala. Ahora
4: miro el No